Two weeks ago, we considered the baptism of Jesus. He came to John and proclaimed that he was to be baptized. John resisted, but Jesus persisted, and so he was baptized by John, and we saw God's affirmation of the event with a loud and a public declaration from heaven, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. The baptism of Jesus is undoubtedly a pivotal moment in his public ministry, in so much as it is the point where Jesus is established publicly as the Son of God. God's audible declaration was public, it was heard by others, and there was no doubt in anyone's mind at this point as to God's perception of this man. This is my Son with whom I am well pleased. One question you always need to be asking as you read narrative is that of the, the flow of the text, the logic of the story. You have to remember that a story is being told here, an unfolding drama, as it were. And so as you move from one scene to the next within a narrative such as Matthew's Gospel, you need to be probing the relationship of one scene to that which came before it, and indeed that which comes after it. Why is this text included in Matthew's Gospel this morning, the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness? And more to the point, why does it come immediately after the baptism? What is the relationship between these two events? I would summarize it by saying the baptism of Jesus established him as the Son of God. The testing of Jesus shows us what kind of son he will be. In the baptism, we understand this is God's Son. God himself makes that proclamation. We're in no doubt who this man is. The very next scene, namely the testing of Christ in the wilderness by Satan, reveals to us what kind of son this will be. Is this son of God one who will obey faithfully his Father in heaven even when things get tough? Is this son of God one that will trust his Father in heaven? adhering to his purposes, even though they will run contrary to the world's expectations? Is this Son of God one who will worship his Father, unwaveringly worship his Father amidst many, many other possibilities for worship? And the answer to all three questions is an emphatic yes. Jesus, the Son of God, is one who obeys, trusts, and worships his Father in heaven. And for that reason, his ministry is now established for the remainder of the gospel. You see, it's significant that this event happens right on the cusp of Jesus' public ministry beginning. Perhaps you have those subtitles in your Bible that the editors have helpfully given to you, not inspired, often helpful. The very next subtitle in my Bible is, Jesus Begins His Ministry. 
It is so important to understand that the preceding event, right on the cusp of that ministry beginning, is one where his sonship is confirmed. The nature of his sonship is made plain to all. He is not a son who will waver in his obedience or his trust or his worship. And so for the remainder of this gospel narrative, we don't need to be doubting him. He will go on to say hard things. He will run into hard times. And nowhere should our hearts waver in our allegiance to Jesus. But as we see his heavenly father paving a course for him toward the cross, we can be confident that he is worthy of our whole lives. We can give everything to Christ without reservation because we know what nature of son he is. The sins that Jesus commands us to lay down at his feet, to let go of and surrender to him. We need not fear what our lives would be like if we were to truly trust him. We don't need to be apprehensive about holding things back. I've trusted you in this area. I know there's disobedience in this area, but I can't quite let go. And by virtue of the testing, God shows us this is a son in whom you can trust. You can surrender everything to him and know that he has your best in mind. He will only ever do you good by trusting him. He is a son that is worthy of your whole life. The passage is divided neatly into three tests, and so we'll work through them in accordance with that structure. Each test is probing a different aspect of Jesus' sonship. The first I've labeled as asking the question, is he a son who obeys his father? Is this a son who obeys his father? We read that Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness so as to be tempted by the devil. It would be better to translate that word as tested. It's one word in the original, the same word that could be in our English Bibles, either tempted or tested. And here, tested would be better. You have to understand, Satan is not primarily trying to get Jesus to to trip up, to fall into some act of sin. That's not the main purpose of this interaction. But rather, Satan is, is probing his heart. He's trying to open up his heart and see what lies deep inside. He's testing him to know what kind of son he would be. We read that he fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. And in case we missed the fact, Matthew tells us he was hungry. (laughs) At that point, the tempter comes. And the first test is this. If you are the Son of God, command these stones 
to become loaves of bread. The devil is not saying, if it's true that you're the Son of God, show us by exercising your power. He's not saying, prove to me that you are the Son of God by this miraculous work that would end your hunger. That's not what he's saying. The devil knows that Jesus is the Son of God. The devil knows that. The devil is saying, since you are the Son of God and you have this power, why don't you just deviate from God's will? You see, Matthew is very plain in showing us that this whole event has been ordained by our Father in heaven. Jesus was led up, verse 1, by the Spirit. That's not an incidental comment. That should govern our reading of the text. The Spirit led him into the wilderness. This is God's will, that Jesus should be found in the wilderness specifically for 40 days and 40 nights without food. This is God's ordained will. I don't know if you've ever seen somebody go without food for any length of time. I've seen men go hungry for a long period of time, and it is remarkable how it changes a man. It is remarkable to see how much our stomachs are connected to our hearts. And an altogether different man emerges when you deprive him of his food. Jesus has fasted 40 days. And so the test is this. You are here by God's will. God has ordained that you would be here fasting. Why don't you just step apart from that will for a second? You have the power. You can change these stones into bread. Just go ahead and do it and your hunger will end. Move aside from God's will briefly. And your pain, these hunger pains in Jesus' humanity, he is experiencing all that you and I experience when we fast. And the devil says, step aside from God's will. To which Jesus replies with scripture, it is written, quoting here from Deuteronomy chapter 8, man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. He's saying, it is more important to me that I honor my Father's will than that my stomach be full. Far more important to me than earthly, physical comfort is that I would walk perfectly in the Father's will. Jesus understands that he is led here by the Father's will and he refuses to step aside from that will even if only for a second. And so he shows himself to be a son of God who is obedient to his Father. The significance, the significance of him demonstrating this obedience is noted by a handful of correspondences between Jesus and Old Testament Israel. 
These are not accidental. They're very intentional. Just as Jesus was led into the wilderness by God, so Old Testament Israel was led into the wilderness by God. Jesus was there 40 days and 40 nights. Israel were there 40 years. It's a very intentional correspondence. Israel did not fast for 40 years, but they were tested by hunger during that time. God says to them in the book of Deuteronomy, I tested you by hunger. He gave them manna, a very simple diet. They weren't eating steak in the wilderness. Jesus is tested by hunger during that time. Jesus' test in the wilderness parallels that of Israel in the wilderness, but it is greater. It is a more intense test. He goes without all food for 40 days, and he is tested face to face by Satan. And so it is telling that Jesus responds specifically by quoting Deuteronomy chapter 8. Jesus goes back to the Old Testament scripture that speaks specifically of Israel's failure in the wilderness. It is there in Deuteronomy chapter chapter 8 that Moses says, you were led into the wilderness, speaking to Israel. You were tested by God. He wanted to know what was in your heart and you failed. You should not have grumbled. You should not have complained. You should not have deviated from the prescribed will of the Lord. Jesus quotes from that scripture. And he quotes from that scripture so as to further impress upon all those that would take in Christ in the coming days the fact that he stands as the representative head of Israel. We thought about this during... Jesus' baptism. He was established at the point of his baptism as the leader, the representative head of Israel. He comes as the true and better Israel so as to lead them in success. It's the same idea here at the point of testing. All of these correspondences anchor Jesus' ministry with the experience of Old Testament Israel The difference being where they failed, he succeeds. Where they disobeyed God, he obeys God. And for that reason, they can cling to him and follow him and find their victory in him. That's the logic that is being established in these early chapters of Matthew's gospel. So you see the point of this testing is not so much to teach us about how we might resist temptation in our lives. We have a way of reading narrative where we always try to put ourselves at the center of the drama. I wonder if you've noticed that. We have a way of reading biblical narrative, be it the Gospels or Old Testament stories, and as we seek to to understand why is this in my Bible, why has God given me this text to instruct me, we often make this, this very subtle move that is so often 
not quite right, where we put ourselves at the center of the narrative. We make it all about us. And so what you hear people do with this text so often is in essence to remove Jesus from the picture and to say, therefore, what we learn here is that the the way in which you might live an obedient life is to memorize Scripture and quote it in the moment of temptation. That is true theologically. We can go elsewhere in the Bible to see that that is a truth that is taught to us. The psalmist says, I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. It is a good theological principle. Commit this book to your memory so as to live an obedient life. It's not the point of this text. Rather, as you see Jesus establishing himself again as the representative head of Israel, as you see him to be the obedient son of God. It is an invitation to cast yourself upon him. If you or I had gone into the wilderness for one day, we would have grumbled and complained and disobeyed. We would be no better than the Old Testament Israelites. You can go into the wilderness this day in Israel and you find it to be a very hot and dry place. You can deprive yourself of food and see how you respond. We are no better. And the grace of the gospel is that it comes to people like us. And there is an invitation here that you would cast yourself upon Christ. That you would delight in his moral glory. People talk here and throughout Jesus' ministry as his in terms of Jesus' moral glory. There are lots of different glories that attend Jesus that theologians like to, to pick apart and dissect. We can talk about Jesus' pre-incarnate glory. Before he was a man, he was glorious. And we can read of his pre-incarnate glory in the Old Testament. You can talk about Jesus' incarnate glory. When he came and became a child, there was glory. We can talk about Jesus' crucified glory. The world mocks him. The world mocks us. But we look at the cross and we see his glory. We can talk about his resurrected glory. The tomb was empty And we find glory in his resurrected state. We can talk about his ascended glory or his returning glory. The glory that is on display here is what people refer to as his moral glory. The glory that exudes from Christ as he walks out an obedient path. And you have to understand that that glory is an implicit exhortation for you to cast your life upon him. Last week in the evening, we were thinking about the discipline of reading in the Christian life, the value of being a reader. And this week, as I was pondering the moral glory of Christ, I was reminded of a small, very small volume that was gifted to me many years ago. 
And I found it on my bookshelf. The title is A Short Meditation on the Moral Glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. The author is almost anonymous. It simply says by J.G.B. There's a small pencil note on the inside cover, two pounds. The person that gave it to me, I think, picked it up in a second-hand bookstore. This edition is on its 18th uh, edition. So whenever this was written, you know that it, it has been successful because it's made it to its 18th edition. And it's a short meditation on the moral glory of Christ. In the very last paragraph, the author says, if we can understand the character of Jesus' ministry, or, to put it another way, if we can read the moral glory that attaches to each moment of his service here on earth. We will learn what he is and thus learn what God is. And with it, we will reach God. You see in Jesus' moral glory, not first and foremost an example for you to follow, but predominantly an appeal that this man would be the centerpiece of your very life. Your being would be oriented around the obedient Son of God, and in Him you would find your righteousness. Now, Satan is not content there. He goes on and issues a second test, which I've titled... Is he the one who trusts his father? Is this son one who trusts his father? He's made plain that he's going to obey his father in heaven, but is there an underlying trust? The devil took him to the holy city, that is Jerusalem. He set him high up on the temple. And he says again, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. And then Satan quotes from Psalm 91. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Satan is undoubtedly upping his game at this point. The first test bore no fruit for him. So Satan quotes Scripture so as to entice Jesus and probe further what's in his heart. You see how deceitful the enemy can be. Don't think of the devil as a cute red cartoon character with two horns and a tail and a staff. Nothing could be further from the truth. It's dangerous for your soul to think of him like that. He is out to devour you. And he'll use scripture if that would work. So he quotes scripture at Jesus, a wonderful psalm full of promises issued by God toward the one that trusts him. Is there anyone on planet earth to whom these promises more apply than Jesus? To the one who trusts me, these promises are true. Satan, knowing that, uses this scripture as part of the test, and Jesus responds with scripture, 
quoting now from Deuteronomy chapter 6, you shall not put your, the Lord your God to the test. You have to understand what Jesus is not doing here is pitting Scripture against Scripture. This is something we can often do without even realizing it. We're, we're confronted with a verse and our response, our, our, our way of reconciling a perceived tension in the verse is to say, yes, but over here it says this. And therefore the issue has been dealt with. And unknowingly what we've done is we've, we've elevated one scripture above another. That's not the way the Bible works. This book is inspired from beginning to end. This book is equally authoritative from beginning to end. And so, what Jesus is actually doing in quoting Deuteronomy 6 is exposing Satan's false use of Psalm 91. Satan is a false teacher at this moment, as he always is. He's quoting Psalm 91 incorrectly. Jesus knows it, and so he quotes again from the book of Deuteronomy so as to expose the error. The nature of the test is this. Not, why don't you just step aside from God's will for one moment? That was the first test. He's not saying that, but he's saying, here's God's will in his word. It's been written. You know it. Here is God's will why don't you behave in such a way so as to force God to act? God has given you these promises. Why don't you now force him to come good on those promises? Or to put it another way, what Satan is asking Jesus is why don't you put God in a box? Why don't you establish yourself above your Father in heaven? Act in such a way that now God has to respond. He's bound to respond in this way. Failing to recognize that God is not bound by anyone, anything, save his own character. That as God gives such rich promises in Scripture, it is entirely his prerogative how and when he will come good on such promises. You know God may well allow Christians to see danger, to face danger, and to die as a result. And we do not say in response, he failed us because his word says that he'll protect his holy ones. We intuitively know as Christians it is up to God when and how he exercises his promises. And so what Satan is saying is if you are the son of God... Will you obey regardless of God's purposes in your life? Are you the type of son who only obeys when it suits him? That's the nature of this second test. Will you obey God joyfully, steadfastly when it goes your way? And only then, or will you obey God, no matter what plans he has for your earthly life? That is what's at stake here in this second test. And already, 
Your mind is, is racing ahead to, to see the implications of Jesus passing this test. You see, he will hear these words again in his life. Twice now, Satan has said, if you are the son of God on the cross, At the end of Matthew's gospel, in chapter 27, the mockers will cry out to him, if you are the Son of God, bring yourself down. That is a satanic cry at the point of Jesus' death. They are representing the enemy at that moment with the very same words that he brought to Jesus in the wilderness. This is not how you wanted it to pan out. This doesn't look very glorious. This is not a very good end to your life. If you're the son of God, come down. They're not asking if Jesus had the power to do so. Of course he did. Jesus, on the point of his crucifixion, is still sustaining the universe by the word of his power. Every single moment of his life, including his death on the cross, Jesus is the upholder of all things. If he wanted to come down off the cross, he could so easily have done so in an instant. But Jesus chooses to trust in the purposes of his heavenly Father. He is an obedient son, and he is a son who trusts. He trusts even to the point of death on the cross. And so you see that the moral glory of the Lord Jesus Christ is the means to your salvation. You see, the moral glory of the Lord Jesus Christ is what makes effective his crucified glory. If his moral glory had not been sustained his whole earthly life, his crucified glory would mean nothing. It counts for nothing that this man died on a cross if he had not first obeyed and trusted his father perfectly. Every second of every day, his ministry was one that was grounded in trust in his father. And if for one moment that trust deviated, now he is not a perfect sacrifice for your sin. But because his moral glory was sustained, tested here at the start of his ministry, sustained thereafter, because his moral glory was sustained, now his crucified glory is saving for you. So if you have come this morning and never even pondered such realities as the moral glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, you maybe haven't even considered his crucified glory, but somehow, somewhere along the way, you have bought into another kind of Jesus, then you do not have salvation in his name. Trusting in another kind of Jesus is not trusting in him at all. You may become this morning and you acknowledge him to be a good teacher who did many good things, 
and accepting that and at the same time bringing something to the table of your own doing that you think is somehow valuable. If that's the Christ you've trusted in, you have no salvation in him. The only salvation that is to be found in Jesus is one that surrenders everything and says, I have nothing to offer you. But I see in your life, your moral glory, evidence most plainly during this episode, but sustained throughout his life. If you see that glory with eyes of faith this morning, and you understand it as a necessary precursor to his crucified glory, then your sins are completely forgiven. Your sins have been utterly dealt with at the cross of Christ. God, who is the God of Jesus, is now also your God. He is your Father in heaven. And you can rejoice that you have been reconciled to Him because His Son was one that trusted his heavenly father. The third and final test is one that probes whether this son worships his father. Is this son one who obeys his father? Is he one who trusts his father? Is he a son of God that will worship his father? The devil took him to a very high mountain. There is throughout this episode an increasing importance to the tests. Each test, the stakes get higher. And that increasing weight of significance is marked out by an increasing altitude. We start in the wilderness, in the low place. The devil then takes him up to the pinnacle of the temple. And the very last test is staged on this very high mountain. The stakes keep increasing. And Satan says to him, look at all the kingdoms of the world. Look at all the glories of all the kingdoms of the world. I... As the prince of the power of the world, that's what we learn of the enemy in the book of Ephesians and elsewhere, God in his wisdom has given him reign over this earth, and Satan in that role says, I give you all of this glory and authority if you will fall down and worship me. Jesus responds, be gone. Because, Deuteronomy chapter 26, it's written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And with that, the devil left him and the angels came and ministered to Christ. The test here is one where Satan knows Christ's appointed end. Satan knows an awful lot, and he knows that one day Jesus will reign over all things. Satan knows that the appointed end for the Son of God is to rule as king 
over the entire universe. One day Christ will return. He'll establish his kingdom on earth. And then, after a thousand years, he'll usher in the new heavens and the new earth. And he'll be shown as the king of every square inch of this universe. Satan knows that. And so the test is one wherein he offers him that end. Here's your appointed end. And you can have it now, right now, this day, this appointed end of yours can be given to you. The way to get there, says Satan, is not by the cross, not through suffering, not through hardship, not through humility. You can have that appointed end now by worshipping me, by falling down in worship to me. It's the right end and the wrong means. And that's an understatement. If Jesus had bought into this test, if he had said, I'll give you my worship, you give me my appointed end, and then the cross, the need for my suffering is done away with, no passion narrative would ever have been written. If Jesus had bought into it, The entirety of God's plan is forsaken. The gospel message is done away with. You have no salvation in Christ this morning if Jesus had bought into this plan. And more to the point, reigning over this universe would be a follower of Satan. You can ponder the hypotheticals all day, and invariably as you do so, you might think to yourself, but... He didn't do that, and it's almost pointless to think through the possibility that he might have done otherwise. Why do we even need to think about the fact that Jesus could have potentially worshipped Satan at this moment? And the answer is because lesser men along the way will keep trying to persuade Jesus to choose a different path. When Jesus says, be gone, Satan, away with me, Satan, it is the same verb that he uses when he speaks to Peter, and he says, get behind me, Satan. In that moment, Peter is functioning as a representative of the enemy, and what is so tragic is that Peter's weakest weakest moment comes immediately after the high point of his ministry where he makes a confession, you're the son of God. Halfway through the gospel at Matthew 16, all this time the disciples have been trying to figure out who is this man. And at that point, Peter speaks as a representative for the group And Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And he says, you are Christ, the son of the living God. It is the high point in Peter's ministry. And Jesus says, because of this confession, the church will be established on you. You'll be forever remembered for making that confession. And then Jesus switches gears. Now that you've recognized who I am, I need to start teaching you about what I need to do as the Son of God. Here's the nature of my ministry, and he begins to teach them about his need to suffer and to die for sinners. And Peter says, it doesn't have to be like this. 
He represents Satan. Satan says, it doesn't have to be like this. You can worship me and it can all be done. And Peter says exactly the same thing. You can choose a different path. And Christ says, get behind me, Satan. And so you see the text is not... It is not primarily given to us in our Bibles so as to provide for us a mechanism, a blueprint for understanding how we are to fight against sin in our lives pastorally. It's entirely true that God's Word is your best friend in fighting against sin. Memorize it. Take the memorization of Scripture seriously. It ought to be a discipline in your life because it is God's appointed means by which you might walk out a path of obedience and trust and worship. All of those things are true. It's not the point of this text. The point of this text is that we would find in Christ a steadfast Savior, one who is worthy of our allegiance. We find in Christ one who trusted God, who obeyed God, and who worshipped Him. And because of that, He is our Savior. Our sins are forgiven because of these realities in Jesus' ministry. And so evermore as we ponder His testing in the wilderness... Face to face with Satan after 40 days of not eating a single thing, he refused to step away from the will of God. He refused to trust in something else. He refused to allow his worship to be directed anywhere other than wholeheartedly towards the Father. You can only respond in worship of him in praise to Him, in glorifying Him, and by saying, my whole life is surrendered to you. Whatever the cost, because there are so many implications that flow out of the text, you understand, Jesus knows His appointed end will be accomplished by way of the cross. Jesus knows that. And as he starts to teach Peter about his suffering, as Peter resists it and Jesus rebukes him, Jesus has more to say. He says, Peter, not only do I need to go to the cross and suffer, but you need to pick up your cross also. If you would be a disciple of mine, you need to follow in my footsteps. You need to get on board with this mission. And as you see the moral glory of Christ, there is an appeal for your discipleship, for your following after Him, to never be ashamed of the Lord Jesus or of His gospel, to understand the path that you choose when you give your allegiance to Him but to proclaim his glory in a steadfast manner until the day that he comes in his glorious return to claim those that belong to him. And he will render us in that day perfect worshippers, those who obey perfectly like he did and who trust perfectly like he did.
and who worship perfectly forever and ever because he is our Savior. Let's pray in response. Father, we thank you for Jesus' testing in the wilderness. We are grateful that he was tested and yet triumphant. We praise you that he is presented to us as one who obeys your will without error, without fault, without deviation. He trusts you completely and he worships you perfectly. And in Christ's moral glory, we find our salvation. His moral glory is what leads him to the cross. His crucified glory is what pays for our sins. We praise you for the Son of God who was tested and triumphant. And we ask as ever that you would enlarge our hearts in love for him. Quicken our steps in obedience to him. That he would be praised. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.